Welcome to Salaf Report, your one-stop shop for discussion on small arms and light weapons from the Middle East, North Africa, and Central Asian regions. Each episode comes with a corresponding post on the website that will have the images and videos that we discuss here, so if you have time, make sure to give it a look. If you like what you hear, consider supporting us on Patreon to help fund things like this and other research in the region. As you know, uh, my area of research is Persian arms and armor, Iranian arms and armor, specifically, I mean, okay, I mean, I, as you know, I start from Bronze Age and then, I mean, edged weapons, and not only edged weapons, any type of weapons, arms and armor. And it includes just also later on uh, firearms. The firearms I'm mostly interested in, or is an area of my research, there are two types. First of all, um, the collection, a royal collection of Iranian museums, which belonged to what you see, for example, in this, in my last book, they belonged to Nasiruddin Shah Qajar. And this is his uh, personal collection. And you should know that this collection was collected over generations from one king to the other. But I will explain later on if you're interested. So I analyzed the inventory. There are like, uh, there are, in this book, you can see hundred items of them, hundred. And uh, there are, I mean, <laughs> pieces of art, right? These are really magnificent things. But it's not only that. I also, um, in this book, um, I did lots of cross-referencing and analyzing. But what I would, I'm always interested in uh, is not so much anecdotes, who said what, who said that, like, for example, European travelers back then or this and that. This book I translate for the first time, technical translations of three manuals on fire firearms and uh, in English. Uh, so I translated from uh, Persian into English. One of them is about um, how to cast cannons from Safavid period. So you know, some of them in some articles, they mention about it, but no one translated the whole thing. So I translated it, how they cast cannons, which is very interesting. And then another one is about um, rockets. It's based like on Congreve, uh, Congreve rockets. And this is the Persian version where Mohandas Tabrizi talks about rockets, how they should be built, which is extremely interested from, I mean, those old rockets, right? From Persian point of view, Iranian point of view. And then you um, also, I also translated and annotated another um, manuscript also by another engineer, Tabrizi, but they have the same last name, but this is another one who talks about cannons, who talks about uh, Howitzers, about mortars, about uh, many other things in another book. So I translated, and the thing is, these translations, what I did, I did not only translate the technical parts, I translated from the beginning where they praise the king, where they praise why they wrote this, because this is the whole thing which gives us an understanding about that. And besides, I also an uh, measured and analyzed all those beautiful pieces of firearms where we have, you can see my book. So I'm mostly interested in um, handmade items, of course, because you know Iran has, has had a very long tradition of uh, making magnificent, for example, swords or armor, like crucible steel, and also welded steel, and it is transferred to firearms as well. You can see indigenous local, uh, locally made um, barrels, for example. I mean, what a beautiful welded steel. You see gold inlaying, gold overlaying from 
this technical point of view, I mean, uh, from aesthetic point of view, not only technical, you see beautiful pieces of art, which I'm really interested in. And of course, uh, I have um, translated in this book three, I have uh, over 125 firearms manuals, which still I need to work on. So you can imagine what kind of wealth of information I have, which give you, give, provides us, you know, like in military science, because as you know, I mean, I'm sure, as you know, this is your field as well. Military science, we, as in any culture, it's not only military, every culture, we repeat our patterns, our modus operandi. It's very interesting to watch that. Cultures repeat modus operandi, and it's, uh, military is no different uh, as we know that. So you can gain lots of information about how they did these things and that and what, why they think that way from their point of view of Iranian point of view, back then and Persian point of view. So that's why, that's what I did the research on. And okay, these are like in the catalog part, not like this is the, the theoretical part. And then there is a catalog part at the end where you can see also 12 items. These 12 items are from engineering corps and artillery military museum in St. Petersburg where a colleague of mine when I was in Russia, he kindly provided me with pictures of 12 Persian items because they were howitzers and they were also mortars which were taken as war booty when Russians and Persians fought in two wars. So because I was looking for some missing information so then you can find it here as well. But um, as I mentioned, um, this type of research, I'm very interested. I don't only do that, possibly, you know, I, mean, I don't want to change the topic. With my colleague, Pete Dwyer, we do lots of archery. I translated lots of archery manuscripts. And um, I have lots of them. And also crucible steel manuscripts. I'm writing, uh, translated, but I'm writing a book only on crucible steel manuals. The good things about these manuals is it provides you information about mindset of people from the culture and region back then, not about a European traveler who traveled there. You know, I'm not saying it's bad because I also mentioned European, European travelers, don't misunderstand me. But it is like, you know that, you know you traveled a lot to different countries. It's always a different thing. If I travel to another country and think those guys think that way or to find out what those guys really think, there are two different <laughs> types of things to, to talk about and to consider. So that's why, um, I mean, when I say original research in this field, uh, I'm, um, I'm into this and analyzing and doing these type of things. What we have are different types here. There are matchlocks, of course. You can see Persian-Iranian matchlocks. You can see the same as in Europe, flintlock and percussion cap systems. Then you have pistols, muskets, and um, different types. And okay, cannons as well, howitzers, mortars. Things like that. Well, it's, there, there's so there's so many tangents that you just mentioned there, and as as you're opening your book, I'm like, I was like, wait, wait I, I want to, <laughs> can I look <laughs> into the screen anymore? Like like that. Uh, I I would love to have it in front of me and just like ask you about it. Unfortunately, I'm in China here, and I, I want to order it to get back to the U.S. And I can't wait to get back to the U.S. to actually see it. Um, I wish I wish I I wish I had I wish I had discovered your work. You know a year or two ago instead of here in China on a movie set. Um, but there's so many different tangents that that I, I was just, you know, going back and forth and stuff like that. 
Um, and I mean, one of it that you, you mentioned, the modus operandi, and that's something that uh, really fascinates me in terms of historical research in that um, I think in, you know, I mean, any, any, anywhere in the world, right? You're facing any industry, any, any, any inventing or any science anywhere, you're facing the same problems and everything is cyclical. And even today you face the same problems as before, but how you approach those problems is tied into, you know, what materials you have at your disposal and, you know, what's you know, around at that time. And I mean, it's, we think of, uh, I can think of, you know, flashlight development and we think of, you know, weapon mounted flashlights today. We think of, you know, these weird, uh, you know, these small tactical lights that go on weapons that allow us to see in the dark. Well, if we roll back the clock 200 years ago, we see, we see examples of, um, of flintlock and percussion um handguns, hand cannons, so to speak. And we can find examples with lanterns mounted on them. And it's like, you know, the, the problem of how do we, you know, how do we defend ourselves in the dark or how do we assault something in the dark with a firearm? It's not a new, it's, it's not a new problem. What we're limited to is, you know, the resources that we have. So that's something I always like to bring up. It's like, you know, we don't think, you know, the latest surefire today, that's, you know, the first time people have stuck a light on a firearm. It's the same thing with stuff like this. Um, what, what I would like to get into is, you know, what, so something I've seen, um, and I, I'm so glad and so grateful for your research um, about per, about looking into the Persian, the Persian side of the match locks, the flint locks, and the percussion cap. Um, but I think within sort of arm within the arms and armor genre i think in in sort of metro in sort of uh western research so to speak western research right um but say like looking at the met or lo looking at the met museum in new york or looking at um the chicago the chicago art museum school of art they have a big arms and armor collection or looking at in the uk or a lot of what ties it in is we see we see the genre within arms and armor of, you know, Oriental arms and armor or Islamic arms and armor. And I, I'm looking at it from a technical perspective from small arms. And I look at, you know, the, the Islamic arms and armor, you know, of these, of these collections or of these, of other books out there. Right. And it's like the Islamic arms and armor is grouped everywhere from, you know, Morocco all the way to India. Uh, to the Mughals in India, and it's like it's all grouped together in, in in occasional ways. And I'm looking at that. I'm saying, wait, hold on a second. But you have we have flintlocks and we have gazelles or tortopaks um, in Afghanistan. We see attributes of these flintlocks and percussion rifles that you don't see in Pakistan. That the stocks are different. The styles are different. We see rifles in the Arabian Peninsula that have nothing to do with what's happening in Afghanistan. We see rifles and, and muskets in North Africa that have nothing to do with what's happening elsewhere. There isn't this pan-Islamic arms and armor. It's not like that all happened together. What happened in the different regions was very um, unique to that region and what that region needed and specified within the design of their, their rifles and their muskets in there. And it wasn't, it's not this pan-Islamic arms and armor, like the Muslims of North Africa and India had a committee and said, this is how we're going to design our, our arms this way. It's, you know, there's much, it's nuanced in this way. 
Um, and that's something I'd like to highlight at Silah Report. And especially I'd like to know from your aspect is what makes, you know, Iranian and Persian flintlocks, matchlocks and percussion arms, you know, in the Qajar period, in the Safavid period, what stands out and what are the unique attributes that we need to pay attention to and say, okay, this is more of a Safavid design. This is more of a Qajar design. And this is yeah. why it's not Afghan. And this is why it's not Arabian, so to speak. I mean, Okay, I mean, this is a, before I, I mean, go in, it's a very difficult uh, question without having showing any pictures or making a comparative study. But just uh, regarding Islamic arms and armor, let me just say, mention something to you. Years ago, it was really years ago, when I, before I published my first book, my pu first book was published in 2006. And I was in arms and armor from Iran, but back then it, there was, I didn't include firearms. It's a very huge book. And I was, before I published that book, I mentioned in many conferences or also in some discussions that the, the very term of Islamic arms and armor is a wrong term. And of <laughs> course, many people were angry at me, especially, I mean, in the West. Okay, I have been living in the West. I mean, I went, as you might know, I lived in Germany and United States. So that's what I mean, the West. So most of my life, right? I left my country of origin as a young uh, teenager. But then the thing is, the thing is for me, which is very interesting, they were really angry. But let me, let us look at it this way, because you know the region well, so you know that's wrong. And let's put it this way for our viewers, which I have been repeatedly saying. That's why I don't say Islamic. Let's look at it this way. I'm a native speaker of Persian, Farsi. As a native speaker of Persian, if you go and say, everyone would laugh at you. If you go and say, everyone not only laughs at you, it is an insult. It is like, mm -hmm. I go to a church and I say, where is a Christian sword here? Right? Christian mm -hmm. sword. Christian yeah. swordsmanship. But here yeah. they were talking Islamic swordsmanship. Islam is a religion. But the... But the the justification was, I remember back then, in Islam, sword back then was an article of faith, but so was in Christianity. When you look at the um, uh, European swords, they have a cross. This symbols the cross for all these European knights who went to the Crusades. Mm -hmm. So if you are, and then if you go and look at it clearly, you see in Turkey, in Iran, Mughal India, whatever, Afghanistan, everywhere you go, no one used this term. In my opinion, this term was used for different reasons. If I'm, I don't wanna, okay, let's be very careful and put it this way, different reasons. First of all, it is always easier, it is always easier to lump things together. Now I teach intercultural management at the university and I always tell my students, do not lump and put them together. So here's so here's a question. I mean, I don't know a lot of questions I've got, but in terms of what you mentioned, something very important, technology transfer, because you know, gunpowder is invented in China, and then there's rocket technology in China, and then it goes along the Silk Road, which Persia is, you know, key intersection right on that road and then keeps on going to Europe. And then we have matchlock and flintlock, you know, these different eras and wheel lock as well. So the mech, but the mechanisms 
in, the, in terms of the more advanced mechanisms with the, the match lock and the flint lock, those, you know, those are were well established to be of European. Between gunpowder being invented in China, ending up in Europe, you know, it, Persia being in the middle of that, you know, where, and then we're talking about, you know, the, all these technologies coming across with match lock, flint lock, percussion, you know, seeing their way back across that silk route. Um, and then being copied in Persia, as you're as you're talking about, where, how does that dynamic take place with that technology transfer, and where where is that where is the Persian twist on that technology transfer, and where and where does that come across as you know where do things end up being uniquely Persian? Are there inventions or attempts with rockets with cannon that um, you know happen between the the you know China you know gunpowder coming along on the Silk Road that you don't see in Europe that are a uniquely Persian flair on that, um, and then where does this stuff get copied from Europe that you're talking about you know that's so I mean, impeccably, um, I mean copied. if yeah. you yeah if you take a look and it, to me I mean if you come and look at the Persian uh, firearms especially you will see it in my bo uh, book the barrels for example the mm the pattern of different types of barrels, the pattern of steel, Persian smiths or gun makers try to continue a long tradition. You know, for example, if you take a look at crucible steel blades, right? There were many different, okay, there were different process because they were made of crucible steel. We know that you know, in the past, they, people thought that crucible steel is not suitable for making uh, barrels. I have never ever seen a Persian one, but uh, I've seen barrels made of crucible steel in India. So it exists. It's not that, because I remember many people were saying, oh, this is so dry, it doesn't fit, but it does actually. But the uh, Persians, I've never seen any Persian barrels made of that. But because making Pulade Gohardar, jeweled steel, like for um, blades, but also this type of Pulade Gohardar was also used for barreled, uh, for, excuse me, for welded steel for barrels. So the tradition, you can see it, the beauty and different types. I know that barrels made of welded steel were also very delicate and sophisticated, but trust me if I tell you that you have never ever seen barrels like that, you will not believe your eyes, what they produce, what type of, uh, beauty or uh, things they did and they had different names on it different um, things so barrels definitely but uh, regarding when the silk road okay in china then going there we know that ottomans were very very sophisticated as far as uh, artillery is concerned Ot ottomans were unbelievable right and you take a look at that what lots of te technology transfer was also to europe as far as guns as you know or, or, or cannons are concerned, were also because of confrontations with Ottomans. There is no doubt about that. Persians, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I mean, during Timurid period, period at least, I mean, uh, the armies in there, they, as I said, they experimented with types of um, uh, firearms, right? Because uh, like, as well as the Chinese did, but then it was uh, not used during early Safavid period of Shah Ismail. Uh, my guess is I'm not the only one who says that is because of the type of warfare they used. They used lots of horses, horseback cavalry. They were very fast. They were very successful in defeating Uzbeks. They were very fast and uh, in defeating many people 
also going to, through the Afghanistan, they were so successful that when he confronted Ottomans, although they told him he's heavily outnumbered and they have guns, but he still believed he will succeed, succeed because he believed that he some I, mean, I think it's both type of warfare as well, which they making formations of infantry. And then I know it exactly from Persian sources from Shah Ismail that they considered it too slow, right? Because they didn't consider they have rows. Some people load one shoots, one, one line shoots, then they go back. They, they always thought they were going possibly through the same time, right? So they said mm -hmm. they, would, they would overrun them. And interestingly, in the first encounter with the Ottomans in Chaldaran also, they broke some lines of the Ottomans. But again, they were outnumbered and they, they were no match for uh, artillery also for the, I mean, uh, the muskets of Ottomans. That's for sure. And that's why they were defeated. That's why then the Persian introduced more and more. I think it's more type of warfare, right? And uh, which dictated it, right? Where Ottomans were, they had Sipahi, they had the cavalry, but they had also Janissaries, they had also infantry, they had a combination of different forces where the Persians saw the necessity. And then that's why Shah Tahmas was successful again against Ottomans. That's why Shah um, Abbas, where they had all these formations, infantry and uh, also were, were successful. So. I, I'm afraid I cannot give you a clear answer why uh, Persians, uh, or in Persia at least in that area, uh, area they um, did not make such things. I mean, I think it's dictating the type of warfare, but once they start to do that, they are successful. And what I'm really interest, interested in, minds, I'm more interested in weapon manufacturing, right? Mm -hmm. That's what I'm really interested and uh, how they make it, what, what they use, what do they look like. And that's what I'm um, very, very interested because you know that when we, when we uh, analyze battles and battlefields, right, um, it's very interesting, right, <laughs> the way people fight against it is well, also what I do, but I'm more interested in material culture, analyzing of weapons. What is the materials used in it? What do they use? How it worked, and things like that. So, so here's so here and here, here's a broader question, just to get on the fringe of some stuff. We have Damascus steel, right? The formation of Damascus steel, of wrapping steel around, you know, an iron rod, right? And that's one technique of Damascus steel forming. Was that something that was used in, in Persian firearms manufacture, or is that something that is, you know, how do we, yeah, let's talk about the materials, you know, we'll dive right into it. Yes, they, they used yeah. it, yes. They used, you know, for example, different bars, right? Uh, and then they combined them, they call it also mar peach, in a, in a twisting like a snake, they used it. That's what they use. Sometimes they use also different layers they hammered it but again against the rod and they were you see that you know they have also names for it they have also i found the manuscript or manual where they call that the names so they distinguished uh, the differences uh, it's always a color as far as barrels are concerned for blades is much more difficult uh, complicated but for barrels this is the color which they use this is the pattern what they use right and this is the lightness and darkness what they use and combined on them, then they develop different names for each barrel. Mm -hmm. So my so my next question in terms of material technology and also in the design, when when is the shift um, in Persia between 
smoothbore muskets into rifle barrels. And I asked this, and I asked this because it's it's very fascinating looking at you know the first Anglo-Afghan war where the, the misconception is you know well I mean oh the, you know these uh you know these primitive Tajiks and Pashtuns. Well, it's like well guess what these primitive Tajiks and Pashtuns are sniping British officers from two hundred to three hundred meters away with rifled barrels you know, and are, and, and are very effective at doing so, you know, so it's like, when does, you know, when does that technology, that, 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 you know, that technology jump happening and, and was it so, I mean, I mean, for, I mean, rifled tech, rifled barrel technology was, a, was existed in many places in the world long before it became, the need for it became, you know, readily apparent due to the Minet ball and all, all sorts of other stuff. But was there, was there that, um, when, how does that, how does that take place in Persia? And did you have examples of, you know, smoothbore muskets and use? Yeah. yeah. We have muskets already from Safavid period, which are the barrels, I mean, which are rifled. Already from Shah Abbas, we have it, which there, you see the rifled ones. Definitely. So very, very early on, right? Right. I mean, very early. Yeah, early on. Yeah. Yeah. Not all of them, but they they are rifled. Definitely, they're rifled. So when do we see? So when do we see? You know, mass production of that kind of stuff. And what is what is mass production? That's another important question. Is what is what is mass production of um, flintlocks and percussion um, rifles and muskets in in, you know, Persia, I, in, in these eras? <laughs> yeah. These examples you see here, these examples you see here, none of them is mass produced. Mm. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you can yeah. see. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, that's, yeah, that's, this, this is a form of art, right? <laughs> No. <laughs> you know, these are mm. royal collection, and I, I don't know if you can see that. Yeah, all the nastalik on the side. Wow, it's beautiful. <laughs> these are pieces of art. You find here yeah. 112, including cannons, are pieces of art. I mean, I mean, the way they cast cannons, I mean... It, you know, no longer is like, you know, I originally come from Japanese uh, blades, you know, and then also then to Persian blades. And these are paintings, right? Of course, they're formidable weapons. I know that. I mean, they're the best cutters, mm. but they're paintings, right? The question of these type of things, which you have, I mean, mass produced and these type of things. I mean, of course, they were all... Uh, used by high-ranking generals, officers, or royal court members. No doubt about that. This was an ordinary soldier could, I mean, come on. I mean, we know that, right? These are in the king's mm -hmm. collection, and that's for sure, right? But, yeah, um, yeah. you know, that's for sure. But, you know, they had, you know, even if you go to, like, some tribes in Iran today, like in Bakhtiari tribe, or if you go to Sistan and Maluchistan, you still find some of them have these old guns, which they keep it. These are like, like cheaply produced. But interestingly, I mean, we have, we have, for example, also, I think it's in my book or I have, no, it's not in this book, but I wrote an article for a Russian scientific magazine in English about um, an, another manuscript where they talk about uh, firearms manufacture and then in big numbers, which was in the Southern Iran. So they used it. I mean, if, what is the mass produced? That's the question. I mean, it's a European understanding of mass produced. You know what I mean? So it's, um, it's nothing like that. Maybe some parts of it were like, like the Japanese, um, look at the Japanese matchlock guns, right? I mean, 
they are not mass produced. We know that they produced lots of them, but still they were not the way we understand in the West what mass production is all about, right? But the, really, I, I tell you, and it's not also from Europeans who traveled to Iran back then, um, all praise, all praise the accuracy and also the high quality of Persian firearms. That for, I can tell you, that's for sure. So what, so what was, so can you talk about some more of the roles of, because we have these exquisite pieces in the Royal Collection um, and, you know, were the roles of firearms, because you have that, that's that long-standing tradition of Persian cavalry, right? And, you know, this sort of maybe reluctance to use firearms in certain ways due to this, due to the, um, due to the, the steadfastness of the cavalry. Um, so what, so where did firearms show up? You know, we, uh, maybe for the hunting parties, I assume, or as, you know, gift commemorative stuff for the royal families. Um, but then where else do they show up elsewhere and I mean, how do they show up? As I, in as these, I mentioned that, um, after the defeat of Chaldaran, they already understood the new warfare. You cannot win it with cavalry only and without firearms. Mm -hmm. They already, you know, I mean, if you look at also during Shah Abbas, definitely he had this Gizelbash, as they called it, this cavalry. He tried to reduce them. He had more forces also coming from Caucasia, he integrated into his uh, army, uh, infantry, uh, and also musketmen and musketeers, and many of them he introduced them. And then that's, that's why he was successful. So already in Shah Abbas era, we, we find that the integration of cannons, muskets, and also infantry. So it's not only that it was for hunting parties there. They, they realized that they cannot rely on this old way or old fashioned way of fighting because the Chaldaran battle was a very big lesson for them. And as I mentioned, they were successful. If you come to Nader Shah period, I mean, you see lots of pictures. You know, for example, let's look at this. This is from is Jahangushai Naderi. This book is praised. Yeah. This book is praised for its accuracy, the way they depict them, right? All the guns and all this. You see that they Nader Shah was very Nader Shah Afshar successful in his campaign, also against Ottomans and the others. So you see, it's not only they have infantry, they have cannons, they have muskets, musketeers, and they have all these things which integrated in there. As I said to you, you know, I have, um, the thing is already, you know, I translated three of these manuals, they're more on technical part, but they also I have uh, many more, as I mentioned, that 125, and they are also on formation, integration, how to deploy infantry in warfare, how to deploy cavalry. But um, yeah, I, I keep working around the clock, but basically, it's, so I, mean, I don't only do research on uh, firearms, I also do research, of course, on swords and other types of weapons. But, um, and, and translating and interpreting these things are not easy. Let me just give you one example. Yes, please, um, yeah. In this book, um, you know, there is, um, translation of, you know, you can compare it to Congreve rockets, like General and a Colonel Congreve, he lost the battle, I mean, British lost the battle in Tyre of Mysore, and then they came back and he comes back and makes all these containers of rockets. He makes them, or I mean, he said we need to make them iron containers so they're more, uh, no, it's not only paper, so it's going to have more explosive power. 
But then this Tabrizi gets a hold of this and he translates it back then in Persian, adds lots of materials to it and writes to the king. And he ha is making rockets this way and that way, much better than the British, right? And he then writes in the beginning of the book that he believes that the British were hiding the facts from Persians because they wrote in English in a way which doesn't make sense. I don't know. <laughs> He's saying that way. Okay. But then the whole time when he writes, he talks about Feshang, right? When I had this, you know, in a museum, when I had these copies of this with picture, it took pictures of it. So it's like 100 pages, I don't know. And um, I realized, I asked him, okay, how many manuals do they have on firearms? They have so many, right? But then I, I said, okay, what is it about? They told me it's about bullets. I said, about what? About bullets, because Feshang in Persian, today's Persian in Iran, Farsi means bullet. I said, what? Yeah. So I started to read. Then I realized they're talking about rockets. But rockets in today Persian is mushak. It's not Feshang, right? So if you're a native speaker of uh, Persian, you think, as the librarians thought, this manual is about bullets, not about rockets, but actually is Feshang back then was used to refer to rockets, not to bullets, right? Mm -hmm. we, should, we have a semantic shift in Persian, not long time ago, it's from, we're talking about Qajar period, right? So, you know, this is one of the challenges you have. Then other challenges you have in Persian, lots of technical terms, you know, you need to go and say, okay, what do they mean here and there? You need to make comparison, Victorian era publications in English, make a comparison, cross-referencing, okay, what do they mean here and there? So it's very challenging and at the same time, very interesting when they talk. My research is not uh, finished because as I mentioned it to you, I have uh, lots of manuals and I need to translate them to give you clear answers because uh, these are written in Persian by Persians, by people there, and which will reveal lots of information to us outsiders. I mean, today word, today's word. I mean. And this is what makes it very, very interesting. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, so concurrently, uh, uh, that's so fascinating about the translation and um, the issues and the problems with that. At the same time, um, so we're looking at um, Martini Henry rifles produced in Kabul at the Kabul arsenal. And there's the same issue with the translation. And it, yeah. Um, I mean, there's a bunch of issues with that. I mean, for instance, there's certain markings on the uh, Kabul Arsenal rifles that actually use the Abjad alphabet in, yes. in digits. And for the longest time, you know, there's this word on there that was spelled in, uh, in Dari. It was 97531. And then right above it, there was the Abjad of it. Um, and it was... <laughs> And it was so, and it was, it was so funny because it's like for the longest time, it's like, what, like, if you don't know what the object alphabet is, you're totally lost in the sauce about it. But once you know, then it sort of makes sense. And this is only a hundred years ago that these rifles were produced and they used these, these, um, these word these words there. And the word, the word exactly um, was jahaz for ready, right? But in Dari, it was an Arabic word for jahaz, but it was an Arabic word that was spelled using a Dari script. So the funny part about it was that Afghans today had no idea what it was, 
because it was an Arabic word that is not new, that is not really in use anymore. But then Arabs don't know what it is because it's an Arabic word that use in a Dari script. So it's, it, you know, it's, it's the same. It's actually a similar kind of thing, what you're talking about with that shift, right? And that was the, and that was the annoying part about trying to figure out what that word was because it was, because, you know, neither side knew what it was, even though, you know, they're native speakers of it. And it was an Arabic word spelled in Dari, but it was, you know, so that, that I, I can, I, you're, you're talking about the shift between ammunition and rockets. And it's like, wow, yeah, <laughs> I've crossed that bridge with the Kabul arsenal stuff. And that's like, what, <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, um, but that is so fascinating about, about the translation problem, the translation hurdles you have to go over there. I have a manual in Persian. I think it's like 85 pages from the period of Qajar. It's about exactly this little rifle you're talking about. It's about its production, its marking, and so in Persian. About the about the Kabul arsenal, about no, the uh, Kabul arsenal, arsenal right? but about the rifle you talk about. Maybe the it's martini, about the martini Henry. Yeah. Ah. I don't know. Maybe be... it's about Kabul arsenal. Maybe I don't know. I haven't. I haven't. I was not very interested in that because I have it. Because I, I will translate all these things one day. The thing is, you know, I was talking to Beat, and I have a big research team. You know, in Razmafsar organization, we have lots of researchers. But the thing mm -hmm. is, uh, you have so many research projects. And actually, to be honest, Miles, what we need is, you know, I teach as a. I work as a lecturer and professor at two universities, but in a different field. But what we need is to make the whole thing a university subject and to do research on the whole thing. I have hundreds of manuals, hundreds. And this is original research and I can we can set up teams and even people don't need to speak Persian because we have enough people who are good at Persian, but it's just combining Persian and also knowledge of weapons, like you guys, for example, having small arms and also others having archery, whatever, and make a huge, but you know, all these things need finance. All, the, all these things need, you know, what, what it takes, you know, you need financing, you need, you know, a big research team, you need, uh, you know, you need a center, you need, and you know, and then, oh God. you know, if, if, if people are interested, you know, I mean, in this old historical research is not, you know, if you do business administration, everyone is interested in. It's clear. It's law, business <laughs> yeah. administration. It's clear, right? Because yeah. you then you, yeah. it's, you find a career. You can, you know, make money for your family. I'm not criticizing it. That's why I also teach. This is not a big deal. But these type of things, what a good thing about them is, these are original research which I have. And this makes a huge difference. Not for the hundreds times Oh, there was a European traveler who at the 18th century, he was a British guy traveling to the region and he saw the Afghans. Miles, let me just ask you something. And because you know this person who traveled to the region, what do I expect from a guy back then who had never been to the region before in 18th century to have an open-minded, to have an open mind to report something which is reliable 18th century guy you understand what i mean what do i expect from such a guy these guys you know look at english reports the way they talk about spanish right look at the way <laughs> the french yeah. talk about british back then they all you know talk down back then 
is not that today's world, right? That people there, I mean, not that everyone is open-minded, but today people travel, we have different types of mentality. But back then, my God, 18th century, what do I expect of these European travelers there, right? <laughs> you see what I mean? So that's, I'm not saying it's bad, um, Miles, for research. They, we should also take them into consideration. But more important, in my opinion, is to find out these manuals, right? And try to find out what do they report because then we can cross-reference. Okay, this is this, this is this. Right. And um, I was, we were talking about it and I was like, yeah, when that guy like got away and my friend was like, wait, what do you mean he got away? And I was like, well, he, there's, we have accounts in the, the British history of, you know, he, there's that, that's, uh, there's um, one village um, in near, not near Kunar. But where it's like, you know, there's a little fight and there's a fight and he was the last part of the British army and all the officers were killed and he was able to get away. And my friend was like, wait, wait, that narrative is not what we, it's not what we have in our narrative. We let him get away. Like we let him go back. And it's like, whoa, these two narratives are diametrically opposite to each other. The British one is saying like he fought away on his own two feet. The Afghan narrative is saying like, no, we let you go to let everyone else know. So it's like, yeah, it's like, <laughs> well, what's the, well, what's the indigenous narrative saying? What's the, what's the outside narrative saying? And how do those come together? And, you know, it's a little bit of both, you know, we don't actually know with that, but we have to see, okay. Cause we'll never, we'll never, you know, the British and the Afghans, unless they ever get together and say, our narrative says a hundred percent opposite of what your narrative says, you know, we'll never be able to even see a prism of what might've been the case. Ladies and gentlemen, that was the end of our Slash Report podcast episode. But if you'd like to know more, read more, and listen to more, please do help us on Patreon, follow our newsletter, and definitely, definitely subscribe to our SoundCloud. And don't forget to check out Slash Report shop. And for a short period of time, we have a 30% discount with the code TARIK, T-A-R-I-Q. So please. Don't forget to check the shop out and use it. Have fun.